Welcome to The Blind Side. News and information from a blindness perspective. Here's Jonathan Mosen. Hi there. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Really appreciate that. I'm feeling very energized. It's raining outside. It's pretty dismal. Good day to be in the studio recording this. But I'm energized because I attended Blind Citizens New Zealand's conference last weekend. It's a very special thing, I think, to get together as a group and discuss issues, clarify issues, share one another's perspectives and experiences, and then take votes that democratically determine the positions that advocacy organizations will take. And perhaps there is a view that there is less need in this age of social media and increased legislative recognition of disability for organizations like this. I'm not convinced about that. I think there is still a lot of value, not just in the political process of collective advocacy, but also just getting blind people together in the one place. It's nice to be somewhere just for a little while where you're in the majority. It's a very special experience. And it seemed like an appropriate time then to bring Clive Lansink onto the podcast. Clive is the national president of Blind Citizens New Zealand, and we'll talk about the history of the organization. It's over 70 years old, so it's been around a long time, and it's done a lot of good things in New Zealand. So we'll talk with Clive in just a moment. And all being well, next week on the podcast, we will speak with Emma Benison, who's the national president of Blind Citizens Australia. Emma's actually going to be visiting New Zealand and staying here at Mosin Towers and so I thought well we'll try and get Emma into the studio since she's right here that all being well will be in next week's edition of the podcast. I do enjoy listening to the conferences and conventions of the blindness organizations around the world whether they be national or state conventions so if you have made any of that happen thank you so much I am a bit of a blindness advocacy geek. I also enjoy reading the magazines and hearing the podcasts from blindness organizations. And so I was just cruising around the web the other day and I found the October edition of the Braille Monitor. That's the magazine published by the National Federation of the Blind in the United States. And I was flipping through that and goodness gracious me, there's me in the Braille Monitor. They sought and I, of course, granted permission to republish my blog post article on the NFB resolution, which was discussing the quality control issues that Apple have had over the last two or three releases of iOS. Now, that resolution and indeed my blog post about it predates the final release of iOS 10. So before I go on, I do want to congratulate Apple warmly on iOS 10 iOS 10, in my view, and I mean, no software is bug-free. I don't think any software can be bug-free. But I do believe that iOS 10 is substantially better in terms of major bugs than the last three releases have been. There are some things that need sorting out, obviously. There will always be things that need sorting out. But the quality control issues seem to have been largely overcome with iOS 10, and I think Apple have done an outstanding job with it, and I think they should be warmly congratulated for the vast improvement. But that's not how things were when the resolution was passed and when my blog post was written in July. And so I was reading the introduction. Obviously, I didn't want to read the article because I knew what I said. And in the introduction, the editor, Gary Wonder, made the comment that he had to translate for me. It's quite true what they say, apparently, about English-speaking countries being divided by a common language. And I've been doing work internationally for 
over 20 years now. So I do my best to try and eliminate any kind of New Zealandisms, although sometimes I use them deliberately because people seem to like them. But if I'm writing to be understood, I try not to use them. And so I have found out through Gary Wonder's, quote, translation, unquote, of my article, that Americans do not use the expression a hiding to nothing. So I learned something. All this time I've worked and lived in the United States and stuff, I did not know they didn't use the expression a hiding to nothing. So if you don't know what a hiding to nothing is, then you should look at the Braille Monitor for October, where Gary Wonder gives a translation of that phrase before they publish my article. But it does happen, you know. I remember going to the States with someone who was from New Zealand, and we went to a restaurant, and we were at the front of this restaurant, and she went up to the person who was managing the line at the front of the restaurant and said, we've got a booking, do we need to stay in this queue? And he kind of looked at her blankly, and said, pardon me, ma'am. And I had to do the translation. And I said, well, actually, what she means is we have a reservation. Do we need to stay in this line? <laughs> so it's extraordinary how these things happen. I think in New Zealand, countries like that, we get a lot of American TV and English TV. So we, we generally can flip-flop pretty easily in the various language idioms, but maybe not so much in America. But it did make me smile. And I guess it just proves that I'm on a hiding to nothing if I think that I've got all this language issue sorted. Feel the need to sound off? Share your thoughts about this week's show by email. Send an audio file or write it down and email theblindside at mosin.org. And what a positively bulging, bulging, I tell you, mailbox it is this week. But let's go through a representative selection of some of the email that has come in. First on the topic of lawyers and discrimination that occurred to Bonnie and me in the lawyer's office and a lot of response to this. Most of it saying that it hasn't happened to them in the United States. So Michael has been in touch. Hi, Michael. He says that he is in the middle of a legal case at the moment and that he gets emailed the documents that he needs and then he reads them himself with his assistive technology and then signs them. The lawyer confirms the document that he is signing at any given moment but doesn't read the document out again. That sounds excellent and highly satisfactory. Here's an email that I want to read quite a bit of from Barbara Corner. Thanks for it, Barbara. She says, hello, Jonathan. I myself am a lawyer who is also totally blind. I work for Disability Rights Ohio. That'll be a one to watch in November, won't it, on the 8th? One to watch, a swing state. Ohio's Protection and Advocacy and Client Assistance Program, CAP. We receive federal funds to advocate for the rights of people with disabilities. Under the Americans with Disabilities Act, says Barbara, any lawyer has a duty to communicate effectively with his or her clients and not to charge for any auxiliary aids or accommodations needed to fulfill that obligation. Thus, for example, a lawyer cannot charge for the time it took to read the wills and other documents to you and Bonnie. In my work, I often have clients who are blind who need to sign important documents like settlement agreements. What I do is email the client the completed document, either as an attachment or I reprint it in the body of the email and indicate that he or she will be signing a paper copy of the document. This protects both sides, because if there is a dispute about the document, one need only compare the email and paper copy. I agree that there seem to be more problems, says Barbara, with doctors and lawyers in terms of providing accommodations to people with disabilities. 
I once had a psychologist who told me I must have better things to do than bother him about having a sign language interpreter for his patient who was deaf. I actually had nothing better to do than bother him about this. Thank you so much, Barbara. Keep up the great fight. It's people like you who make a difference for all of us. So thank you for all you do and people like you do. And that does sound like a really satisfactory process. Indeed, it's the kind of process that I would like. There is no need to reread a document when you can satisfy a lawyer that you've read it yourself. Being blind doesn't mean that you're incapable of reading for yourself and understanding for yourself. And finally, on this subject from Kathy Blackburn over in Austin, Texas, and she says, I've been enjoying the podcasts. To answer your question about will preparation, no, we didn't experience the problem with our attorney that you had with yours. We made our wills probably 10 years ago, definitely before iDevices, but we did get electronic copies of the will and medical directives. Good luck in your advocacy efforts. Thanks so much, Kathy. It certainly does give me inspiration that this is how it can be done. It's how it should be done. And I'll do my best to make sure that it's how it will be done in future, at least where we're concerned. Now, Kathy also sent me an interesting email that follows up in some respects from our podcast from a couple of weeks ago on the Foundation Fighting Blindness and their How I See It campaign. And this is about another fundraiser that is going on with a wheelchair emphasis. And Kathy sent me the article and she explains that it all started with a high school student who uses a wheelchair and the school building lacked automatic doors. Rather than filing suit, he did a wheelchair challenge fundraiser and got enough money to get the doors for his school. This year, he's raising money for automatic doors at an elementary school. I had friends who went to that school when I was elementary age, says Kathy, though it was not a special education facility then. She says, I'm embarrassed for the school district that no one saw to it long ago that accessibility modifications were made. I admire the boy. His name is Archer Hadley for taking the initiative to solve the problem himself rather than filing suit, though filing suit would be more respectable than begging for money. There's a very interesting point you raise, Kathy, and I think obviously there is a place for philanthropy, but should philanthropy be a way of resolving fundamental human rights issues in a Western democracy, you would think that legal obligations would require any school district to make their facility accessible. But it also does bring us back to this question of simulating disability because the overwhelming consensus of the feedback that we received from the podcast a couple of episodes ago was that what the Foundation Fighting Blindness have been doing with their How I See It campaign is not only distasteful, but also actually counterproductive and sending negative signals about what it means to be blind on a daily basis once you've had appropriate rehabilitation and training. Is it the same for a wheelchair user? And I don't profess to be qualified, never having been in a wheelchair to speak on this, but it does occur to me that maybe one of the differences is that you're not simulating the sudden deprivation of a sense you're seeking to emulate an experience of inconvenience caused by the inaccessibility of the built environment. 
And so perhaps it is different. It would be interesting to know all those people who emailed in very upset by what the Foundation Fighting Blindness have been doing, whether you feel the same way about a wheelchair simulation or whether you can articulate what the difference is. Mercifully, I believe the Foundation Fighting Blindness campaign is now over and let's hope we never see the likes of it again. We did an interview in last week's podcast with Eric Miller, who was from the Rush Miller Foundation, and we got quite a few really nice emails about this. I'll just read a couple. Here's Carolyn Pete here in New Zealand, and she says, Hi, Jonathan. Loved the most recent podcast. Lorraine Tuttle. Gosh, that's the name I remember well. She used to be uh, an O&M instructor at the School for the Blind here. Used to take us kids at Homai out on a tandem on Witty Station Road for a treat after our mobility lesson. Of course, there were no helmets in those days. I have a story you might enjoy about Terry Free and bike riding. He lived in his childhood in the Dominion Road area, not far from my mum's place when she was a child. Terry, who was deaf and blind, rode his bike using his cane to tap along the centre of the road. Keep in mind, trams travelled down Dominion Road. Now, one afternoon, when my mum was five... Terry put her on the back of his bike and took her down to the local park to play. While they were at the park, Terry got told off by a very grumpy lady who informed him that bikes were not allowed there. He said, who said that? And the lady asked him, can't you read the sign? Well, of course, Terry said, no, I'm blind. And the woman nearly had a heart attack on the spot. Mum and Terry laughed about that story for years. Yeah, there's a lot of that that went on, you know, bike riding. I don't know whether kids still do it. I hope so. It's kind of adventurous to do those things from time to time. Here's another email on the subject to finish off our segment, because we've got so much email we could go on forever. But this is from Kao Wright in Hawaii. She says, hello, Jonathan. What a great interview you did with Eric Miller. I had the great honor of meeting Eric and his family around 2003. I was 13 years old and I got a tandem bike from them. They stayed at our house for a few weeks. I got to participate in the triathlon during the time that they were staying here. We came in second place. Well done, Kao. I still have the tandem bike, but it's not being used much anymore. That's a lovely story, Kao. Thanks. And it's good to know that the Rush Miller Foundation makes a difference in people's lives. Very impressive stuff. Oh, man, I am terribly sorry about that. I meant to sneak through a vent in the ceiling and end up losing control of myself and crashing through your coffee table. Sorry about that. Hey, I'm the snowman, and I just wanted to drop in ever so quietly and gently tell you that I'm broadcasting again. If you know me from the snowman radio broadcast, that's not what this is. This is a music show. This is a Saturday night oldies party for fogies. People like me who like to sit around and listen to the 60s and 70s music and senior moments on the program <laughs> well they're they're just kind of a way of life and you have to tune in to find out really how bad that is nobody listens but if you tune in well then that'd be two of us it's a great way to spend saturday night it runs 8 to 11 p.m eastern time which is 5 to 8 pacific now that's a lot of information to remember but don't worry i'll be back and i'll remind you meanwhile i'll uh, have them send in a new table for you and i'll take these pieces with me 
And I'll see you Saturday. Well, I don't know. That coffee table had sentimental value too, mate. Let's just have a couple of quick thoughts here before we move on to speak with Clive Lansing, our featured guest on The Blind Side today. The first one is that as we publish today here in New Zealand, it is Saturday, October the 15th. And you know what's significant about that? I hope you do. It's International White Cane Safety Day. So there are occasions, celebrations, awareness raising exercises all around the world that celebrate the independence of blind people and particularly the importance of the white cane as a symbol of independence. If you're involved in International White Cane Safety Day celebrations, good on you. Congratulations. See, that's another New Zealandism. Good on you. Congratulations and happy White Cane Safety Day to you. At the Blind Citizens New Zealand conference last week, I thought it would be a fun idea to set up a Roger group. Now, if you've not heard of Roger, Roger is a smartphone app. It's available for both iOS and Android, and it's a kind of a walkie-talkie thing. Now, there are a lot of these walkie-talkie apps about. Roger seems to be constantly under development. It's stable. They're very aware of the needs of voiceover users, and they're quite responsive. And it has some really nice features. So I decided to just take the initiative and set up a Roger group for the Blind Citizens New Zealand Conference, where everyone at the conference who had a smartphone and wanted to join it could communicate with one another. Well... What did I unleash? It's been a huge success, and when the conference was over, everybody said, oh, it's a shame we just can't keep talking like this. So now we've changed this Blind Citizens New Zealand conference group into a Kiwi Blind chat group. So if you're listening to this in New Zealand and you have not yet joined the Kiwi Blind Chat Group, then you would be very welcome. It's a way for New Zealanders to share experiences and tips and tricks, and it's quite an active and very useful group. So if you are a New Zealander, either living here now or expat, and you want to join this Roger group, then do be in touch with me. I'll make sure we hook you up. Get the Roger app for free from the iOS App Store or from Google Play. It's time to hear from this week's featured guest on The Blind Side. If you were listening to Mushroom FM Extra across the weekend, you will have heard the proceedings of Blind Citizens New Zealand's 2016 conference. And we're going to have a series of discussions about blindness consumer organisations around the world and how they work, some similarities and also some differences, some of them based on culture, I guess, some on size, some based on just what's important to the people involved in the organisations at any given moment. And we're joined now by Clive Lansing, who is the president of Blind Citizens New Zealand. He's on the phone from Auckland in New Zealand. Clive, it's great to have you here on The Blind Side. Thank you, Jonathan. Good to be with you. Let's go back to the beginning because Blind Citizens New Zealand, or as it was first called the Dominion Association of the Blind, is I think one of the earliest consumer organisations, not just in New Zealand, but generally. NFB was formed in 1940 and this organisation not that much later. That's right, 1945. And it seems to have had its its birth in the workshops of the then um, foundation, well, it wasn't the foundation of the blind then, but the the organization we now know as the foundation of the blind, which is the main service provider of uh, for blind people in New Zealand, had in those days sheltered workshops and um, a number of hostels uh, that blind people, a lot, a lot of blind people used to stay at and then they worked there. So you can imagine this quite institutional environment and um, and some people began to stand up for better conditions and more 
uh, pay and recognition of, um, of of blind people, and that's where it began. And it, it spread from there to being more about campaigning for uh, other things to do with blind people living in the community. I mean, it was a very paternalistic environment back then to the extent that if there were two residents of the organisation who wanted to marry, perhaps they were both involved in the workshops in some way, they would actually have to seek the organisation's permission to marry. Yes, I, I think that's right, and it it um, and it applied to people who were living in the in the residential wings of the, of the organisation. Yes, very paternalistic. I think if you you know think about it in today's terms, I, I suspect that um, back then there might have been a sense uh, in amongst people generally that when it came to something like blindness, you know, the the charity. Uh, set up to look after blind people, and I and I use that phrase um, specifically. Set up to take care of and look after blind people. That charity knew best, and so I think most people just had that natural inclination, including blind people themselves, to just accept that that was the way things were. Uh, but yes, we've certainly moved along quite a quite a long way since then. There have been numerous struggles over the years between the association or blind citizens new zealand as it's now called and the service provider here in new zealand over how much influence blind people directly have in terms of determining the way that money raised in their name because the foundation does raise a lot of money through charitable giving is spent and sometimes there have been periods of excellent cooperation that has really been very fruitful it seems that it's sort of cyclical and that these cycles have yet to be broken. Sometimes there's a lot of cooperation. At other times, it's still quite acrimonious. Yes, and it's, you're quite right. And it doesn't just relate to blind people. I think that the disability sector continues to struggle with this idea of disabled people standing up for ourselves as opposed to disabled people kind of just going along with the the whole sector's uh, agenda. But getting back to, to blind people specifically, we've certainly had periods of good cooperation um, between us, even though during those times of good cooperation there might have been respectful uh, disagreements. But we've also gone through quite uh, periods of quite strident um, <laughs> uh, conflict and disagreement and and sometimes it's it's cut up quite rough between the two organizations if you look back and somebody says who's not familiar with the organization what are some of the highlights in terms of the achievements that the association can point to what will be some of the things that immediately come to mind in the early days we had a lot to do with um, making our currency accessible so um, I think you know, New Zealand has has always, well, ever since I can remember, had currency that uh, that blind people could relatively easy easily identify, including banknotes. Um, being able to cast a vote um, in in an election, having the permission to be able to to take someone of your own choice into the polling booth, so that you you'd still be sharing your vote with someone, but you would be the one who would choose who you would share your vote with. Um, blind Citizens New Zealand has also been influential in establishing some, well, we would call them benefits, but they're income, income support mechanisms really to um, 
to help blind people who are often on low incomes, if not unemployed. And I, I know that in, in some countries around the world, that concept might be quite foreign to them. But certainly in New Zealand, we have had um, social supports for a long time. So there are specific things to do with blindness and disability that, um, that our organization has achieved in that area um, over, over the years. I guess in more modern times, we've certainly been pushing for more inclusion in the mainstream of, of society. So one of our more recent achievements has been to finally get audio description onto New Zealand television, and that has been very successful. Uh, this occurred when New Zealand went digital, and because our older analog system just somehow wasn't going to be able to support audio description, so we basically gave up the fight. But once we went digital, we thought we needed to, to capture that moment and make sure that the digital format would support audio description. So we have a, a method of audio description in New Zealand that is effectively available on almost every television in New Zealand, including the Sky Decoders, which is our main subscription service. It's quite easy for people to get the right equipment. You don't have to get anything particularly special. And so audio description is has been in, on New Zealand television for five years now. I think it's five, maybe six, and is slowly getting more and more popularity and, and just becoming accepted. Uh, so that and things like um, convincing banks to uh, install talking uh, telemachines, talking cash machines, um, you know, some other countries take those for granted, but we didn't have them in New Zealand, I think, until, I'm going to guess now, maybe 2007, 2008. Um, might have been a bit earlier, but it's certainly only in the last few years that some banks have been putting them in. And so some of those are, are just, you know, you chisel away, you chisel away at these things, and every so often um, you, you get some success. And um, probably if I sat down and really thought about it, I could think of several other things that, that we've done that, that I can personally claim, you know, we've had a hand in bringing about. So it's just sustained advocacy that we do at a government level, uh, particularly at a government level. Um, and in fact, much less of our time nowadays is spent uh, lobbying the Blind Foundation, we're much more about um, lobbying uh, at government level for for the things we need at a national level. Uh, inclusive education is a big one. Uh, you know, the list goes on. But those are the things that that uh, we we're particularly involved in uh, nowadays. One thing that has always stood out for me all the way back to the 80s was that there was a call for blind people to have more access to magazine information. And the foundation was initially reluctant to fund that. And so the association actually put its money where its mouth is and said, okay, we will prove that there's a demand for this service and actually started a magazine recording service, had a studio built. And a lot of that work was done by blind people who knew what they were doing with audio, put that studio together, got some narrators to record and proved that there was huge demand for the service and ultimately that was transferred back to the major service provider. Yeah, and that's not the only example. In fact, um, I remember being one of the people that walked under that house, putting that those cables through <laughs> from the studio to the control room and banging on the floor and, and then somebody drilling the holes through. Yeah, I remember those days. And in fact, I had a, 
a friend who was a one of my main readers, and uh, his name was Chris Charleston, and I was paying him to read a magazine called uh, Metro Magazine, which is one of one of, it was a popular magazine in Auckland at the time, and it occurred to me that. Um, since I had already been recording this magazine, we should be using it as an example. And so Metro Magazine was one of the first uh, magazines to, to be in that new, um, albeit temporary and experimental magazine service, and it proved to be very popular. Uh, yes, once it got big, obviously um, it got too big for us to handle as a, just a bunch of dedicated volunteers, and we had one paid person uh, who we got funding to pay who was kind of coordinating it all but it all was a bit um, uh, hard to, to manage because it got big quite quickly lots of copying and stuff going on so yes we proved and proven the demand and the and the foundation uh, then did take it over and it's still going today of course in a, in a, in a different form it's now uh, on daisy um, uh, format and on cds and so on uh, but it's it's still it's still happening, yeah. And like a number of people in a smaller country like New Zealand, you've contributed to the community in a range of capacities. Um, another area where I think the association really led the way, and again, I think this goes back to the eighties, was when we were using answer phone technology to go ahead with the idea that you could provide an information-based service that not only gave news but also allowed blind people the opportunity to give their feedback and it kind of created a, a communication, a two-way communication mechanism that was updated weekly. And that was done uh, with, a, with a great old answer machine that had two standard cassettes. But ultimately, that led to you thinking about doing that using computer technology. And finally, we got the telephone information service, which is something that the Blind Foundation continues to operate, and it's been modernized over the years. That's right. I, I mean, there are talking news services of various descriptions around the world. And when we created the telephone information service, we kind of looked at some of those other systems. But what I wanted to create was a system that didn't require a lot of central control so that you could almost delegate uh, bits of the system to, to people who could just administer from their own uh, telephones in their own homes. And so that kind of allowed everything from Blind Citizens New Zealand, which is one of the big advocacy groups, but also sports groups and various kinds of clubs to just have their own little space where their members could phone in on the same system but just go to their particular menu and then hear the the news and updates that related to their particular organization and it also had the facility for people to leave messages that could be then replayed um, to, to people generally by the organization concerned so that has become very uh, like popular it's possibly declining a bit now as technology has changed and more and more people are sort of doing that sort of stuff online and communicating that way. But for, for some people, that isn't an option. So the telephone still remains an important piece of equipment. And I, I had kind of come to terms with the fact that maybe that, that system would just be allowed to die, but I was quite uh, pleased that the foundation not only decided to... Um, effectively modernize it because you know that original software was 
20 years old and almost nothing would, would run it. Um, and they, they decided that it needed to be modernized, that they would continue to invest in it. And I got the contract to rewrite it. So I've completely rewritten the software and, and it's got another, ble- another lease of life. Uh, and um, so, you know, it, it, it's, I think it's very unique in the world. I think it, it, perhaps it very much suits the New Zealand culture. But it's, um, it, it's just a, a system that really has uh, allowed people to connect in a number of different ways just using the humble telephone, which uh, I guess still has a place uh, even in today's world. Right, because it's ubiquitous, isn't it? I mean, even people who are who are elderly and a little bit nervous about adopting new technology, maybe they've gone blind recently, they at least get to the point where they can use a telephone and follow very clear instructions. So it doesn't exclude yeah. that many people. That's exactly right. So it, and obviously the foundation still sees a future uh, in, in a service that is still built very much around the telephone. Although the interesting thing is that the new system that the foundation now has does have a, a web interface um, component. They haven't made it public, but they use it behind the scenes to administer the system. And uh, I guess it's just uh, getting closer to the idea that perhaps in the next iteration there will be a smartphone app and a, and a web page that also allows people to access that same information that way. So it may evolve into something quite different in the near future. One of the things that when you were recapping some of the highlights that we didn't talk about was the fact that the association was clearly the driver in changing the entire constitution of the what was called the Foundation for the Blind and reforming it. Uh, it was a difficult process, uh, so that Mm. blind people could elect the board of the foundation, and this was called self-determination, having the ultimate control in who the people are that make these decisions about Mm. strategic planning. Now, in the context of the telephone information service, what's significant about this is that people can vote via the telephone in absolute secrecy. It's all done via an automated system, so no one knows who you voted for, you don't have to talk to anybody. And it occurs to me that one of the struggles we still have in New Zealand is a truly secret ballot when it comes to voting in all sorts of elections and that the telephone Mm. information service really sets the trend, describes what's possible. It does, although I have to make the point here that um, you know it's one thing to set up a voting system for an organization's board. It's quite another to set up a voting system uh, for a whole country's uh, government. And I do, I do think I do have some sympathy for the concerns that that people have about security and and wanting to be sure that whatever kind of election system, if it's automa- if it's a technology based system. Uh, isn't going to be in some way um, able to be hijacked in some, <laughs> in, in some way. Now, I, I do think that um, there are ways of um, restricting the, the the impact of any such um, uh, technology problem, but you know that's another subject. It, the telephone information service demonstrates at least that it can be done, and it also demonstrates that that's what people want. You know, there's a certain sense of um, empowerment, a certain sense of being absolutely in control of your own decision. Like you might say, I'm going to vote for so-and-so and you secretly know 
you're going to vote for someone else. And you go on to that, and you, you get into that quiet room, you make the phone call, you, you cast the vote. No one knows that you didn't vote for the person that you've been saying, you know, because you secretly want to, want to back somebody else. And I, I, I think when it comes to um, elections and government, some people do find themselves in that position. The family wants to vote left or the family wants to vote right, but you want to privately vote, you know, um, somewhere else. It's the and, Brexit um, effect, isn't it? I mean, with Brexit, a lot yeah, of people yeah. did not tell the pollsters how they were really going to vote. That's the thing. And, and, and we're finding in recent years that the pollsters are often getting it wrong because people will not divulge to the pollsters their, their real inner feelings. They'll only do that when they get to the ballot box. And for blind people at the moment, there isn't that absolute assurance that you get to the ballot box, you're going to have to share that vote with someone else. Now, you know, ultimately it's when you can do it yourself and no one knows that that's the ultimate that we're, that we're seeking, the, the, the opportunity to vote uh, in absolute confidence. Uh, we still don't have that. Back in 2003, there was this big change where the foundation became the foundation of the blind and the board is directly elected by blind people now. And I wonder whether you feel that that has blurred the line in any way between the differences between a service provision organization and a consumer organization. In the past, we've followed a pretty traditional model and you see this line blurring in various ways. For example, the NFB in the US, which really came from very similar roots to the association here. They've got into service provision now. But in New Zealand, what's happened is that the Blind Foundation feels that it has some sort of mandate to get into advocacy now. And this is something that came up at the weekend's conference quite a bit. Has the association successfully been able to forge a place for itself in the governance reform era, do you think? Well, I guess the short answer is no. I think I think that um, ever since we won that right to um, to elect the board of the of the organisation that, let's face it, raises a lot of money in the name of blind people and then spends it in the name of blind people, we now do have the sort of democratic control of that organisation. But ever since, almost almost to the day, ever since that happened that organization has taken a different view of its kind of mandate, as you've said, and has actually challenged, uh, almost challenged our mandate in a sense, because obviously when you have consumer organizations around the world, um, comparatively speaking, membership of them is quite small. So we get challenged as being not representative of, of, of all of the people that we should be representing and, and we accept that that's a good argument and somehow then organizations like the blind foundation sort of say well we'll claim that now because you know you guys have elected us um, and of course the argument in response is well we elected you to run the service just like we would elect our city council to run the services of the city we don't elect you to then sort of speak on our behalf just like we wouldn't expect our mayor to, you know, to speak on subjects other than the, the the issues that the city faces. You wouldn't expect the mayor to be speaking on behalf of the members of the city, the people. Yeah. Well, 
so this is a kind of a fine line that that I think is 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 needing to be defined, and we actually haven't done a very good job either on perhaps on both sides at just learning how to how to live together now under this new era where we're actually responsible for electing the board of the of the service provider while at the same time still claiming the mandate to be able to speak for ourselves now I do think it's resolvable, but I do think that um for whatever reason, and it's probably quite a complicated thing to analyse, it has been a point of contention uh, ever since that reform um, occurred. There is a, a tendency now for blindness agencies to communicate a lot more. It's easier these days, you know, because they can communicate via internet and all sorts of other technologies um, to, to, to keep in closer touch. And it seems to me that this approach of feeling that they have a mandate for political and social advocacy is an approach that's been taken not just by New Zealand, but there's a whole conglomerate of these blindness organisations doing it now, including Vision Australia, uh, CNIB, where they, to be fair, they have quite a fragmented consumer sector, but there's a lot of it about at the moment. Yes, well, see, I'm a little bit cynical, um, and uh, what I'm about to say might be a little controversial, but i I'm not particularly happy with, for example, the way that the World Blind Union was formed out of the, um, if you might call it, the consumers on the one side and the providers on the other. Now, and that's just one example. In in the 1980s, it seems, uh, and it might have been under the, you know, the influence of the International Decade for the Disabled, there seemed to be a push to kind of bring everybody onto the same page, this idea that you know, we shouldn't be working in separate camps. We should be working together. And people still wave this kind of idea about as if somehow there's this holy grail that we will achieve if only we could work together. But, you know, the, the reality is that the providers have far, far more resources. I mean, NFP stands stands as a, as a great example of, of the opposite of what I'm saying, but because they do have good resources. But in general, the, provide, the, the consumer organisations have very limited resources available to them compared to the providers, and the needs the needs are quite different. You know, organisations that are on the provider side of the fence, the ones that are delivering services, they have quite different needs compared to organisations that represent the consumer's view. And there are plenty of instances over the years where I think the the agenda has been driven by the needs of organisations rather than the actual needs of individuals, and 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 I and I do have quite strong personal views about that. Again, uh, taking the World Blind Union as an example, they've really gotten behind the push um, for the Marrakesh Treaty, and perhaps we could say rightly so. But I do think that that the energy going into the the Marrakesh Treaty is arguably letting publishers off the hook who refuse to publish in accessible formats so that the only way you might get their material is through some kind of blindness organisation. And arguably the Marrakesh Treaty obviously helps with that because it will help with the exchange of materials across borders. But it's actually letting the publishers off the hook on the one hand, and it's it's playing into the hands of the established blindness organisations on the other. And it to me, it it's actually fundamentally missing the point. 
you know, if I went to McDonald's and they said to me, we don't serve blind people, I'd immediately have a, a case. But when I go to a publisher who says I don't serve blind people, I still don't really have a case. I still can't take that, that, that publisher to court uh, in the same way because that publisher might be overseas. They're, they're not breaking a law in New Zealand. The fact that, that I can't get their material here in an, in an accessible format, um, it just becomes a, a, a grey area. And I don't believe the, the World Blind Union has put its energy as much as it should have into that matter of principle and that the, the Marrakesh Treaty is kind of a sideshow to the main event. But I'm not saying it's not important, but I am saying that it's kind of a, you can see how it's being driven by the establishment's agenda rather than by the in, agenda that blind individuals might have set if we'd had the, the influence. You may or may not have seen I wrote a blog post on this very thing a few weeks ago uh, saying that the Marrakesh Treaty is an important stopgap measure. But what you highlight mm. is the potential for conflict of interest when you have service provider organizations who also take on advocacy roles because they may be advocating not necessarily for what's in the long-term interests of blind people, but actually in what's in their long-term interest to survive. Yes, that's right. I, I'm, I, I am aware of your blog post, but I must admit I haven't, I haven't uh, read it in, in, in detail. Right. But I, <laughs> <laughs> you can't get to everywhere, can no, you? No, no, no. You're, you're, you're right, though. Yeah. Uh, sometimes, sometimes I find that the the way that a service provider approaches these issues is complicated by their own. Um, organizational interests. So let's change the subject into to something completely different. I was aware uh, some years ago of a custody battle um, uh, involving a blind parent. Now, th this blind parent had, had lost her sight quite suddenly because she'd had an operation and during the operation, uh, there was, you know, it was a, it was the kind of operation that, that, and it damaged the optic nerve. So she went in sighted. She came out blind. She had a, she, she already had the child, and so now she had to go through this period of rehab. And um, there was, a, there were issues around her ability to uh, look after the child and so on. And it was quite a, quite a difficult case uh, uh, that I was aware of. And at one stage, this case got some publicity. There was some publicity in the, in the newspaper. Um, well, this person was being uh, well supported by the specialist staff of the Blind Foundation, so no problem there. But I did recall talking to one of the comms people at the Blind Foundation who was more concerned about what this publicity might do for the organization's image. And that's what tells you, that's what tells you the difference. You know, there was a moral high ground here that, that, that could have needed to be taken, but the, but the comms person who was in charge of comms at the time was really more focused on the need for the organization to protect its own reputation. That's the difference between when the chips go down and you're, and you're fighting for your rights on a purely moral um, sort of basis the kind of organizations we have that are supposed to be batting on our side aren't always going to be there for us. That's why we need disabled persons organizations. And, and nowadays, 
where this philosophy has become quite uh, established in thinking and it's reflected in the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, etc., my view is that organisations that are the big service providers across the whole disability sector should actually be celebrating um, disabled persons organisations and encouraging them, uh, encouraging their clients to join and, and to be part of that independent collective voice because there's, there are going to be times when what we have to say is not what the providers would like to be said. Uh, for their own for their own organisational reasons, and we should respect that, but they should also respect that there are times when we've just got to tell it like it is. The other alternative, of course, is that the organisation becomes a service provider itself, and perhaps becomes a consumer-driven service provider that is more focused on providing things that people need where there's a gap, and. At the conference last weekend, there was this comment that was made by the current chair of the Blind Foundation's board that he felt that organisations like Blind Citizens were the tail wagging the dog, and he did use that phrase. So I suppose it's almost like there are these people who maybe to some sort of sit there sniping and uh, are constantly being critical, maybe sometimes not particularly constructive, they can't put a foot right, and yet they're they're just sort of constantly camping on the sidelines. Maybe are we reaching the point where the the demarcation between being a service provider and being a consumer organisation is over, and that maybe blind citizens might consider providing either rival services or services where there is a gap? Well, okay, two points there. Um, when the chair of the Blind Foundation was talking about the tail wagging the dog, I think what he was saying there was um, that somehow the leadership of um, disabled people, so I guess that's people like myself and you've been there and, um, you know, that, 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 that somehow we have, um, that the leadership group has somehow captured uh, the, the, the movement and, and is controlling it, whereas... Uh, I, I see it more as being that we are put there by people who have confidence um, in, in us. And, and secondly, I know from, from experience, and maybe you know from experience, if you, if you start doing what the people don't want you to do, they'll tell you, and if you keep doing it, they'll boot you out. <laughs> so um, I, I don't believe, I don't think the chair of the Blind Foundation was right when he was talking about um, the tail wagging the dog. Um, I think in the old days, it, it might have been right. In the old days, organizations like ours were much more driven from the top, like your traditional union. You know, they would whip uh, whip people into line and, and, and give people a sense that, you know, you believe in the cause, etc. I think nowadays, we're much more driven from the grassroots, and that's what we should be. But should we be providing services? Well, I've tended to to, to disagree with the idea of consumer organisations like ours actually providing services, because the problem is, where do you go? Where do you, who do you complain to if if the services you're providing uh, aren't up to scratch? But what I have come to realise also is that maybe there are some services that can genuinely be provided that that are complementary to being a consumer organisation. So, for example. Um, Workers who work actually in the community, 
giving information and and actually supporting blind people or other disabled people to 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 have to be able to make decisions in a more uh, informed way um i can't really see that that com- uh, conflicts with being a consumer organization because what you're actually doing is just making sure that as much as you can that uh, all your members and even people who might not be members uh, are just more informed and more able to make choices there might be times when as a community worker you actually help with advocacy at a local level or whatever so i do think there are some services that community that consumer organizations like ours can do and actually blind citizens new zealand has been right even as we speak is um, kind of testing the waters in that area with a community worker uh, pilot project that we got funding for that uh, is just about to complete and we'll be assessing the uh, whatever what evidence it has um, given us about the success of that and um, obviously if if we can go from that to the next step which might be to get funding for a much longer term community worker in in one area and and go from there step by step um other disabled organizations i'm aware of have gone down this track and i think it can be reasonably successful but i'm not so convinced that blind citizens new zealand should be running library services or offering um mobility instruction or whatever unless we can do it in a way that really ensures that this that that there is still a a direct way for blind consumers to to voice their opinions and not feel in some way shut down by the very organizations that 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 is there to be that voice so um i'm still open to how it can be done but i think it's important not to not to get hooked up in 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 that problem otherwise you end up perhaps being a, a well-intentioned service provider but but on the other hand if your consumers haven't got that 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 voice anymore without feeling constrained then you've probably um you know lost uh, lost on the deal you mentioned other disabled persons organizations and they played quite a big part in the association's conference and the blind citizens conference over the weekend what kind of a difference in a practical sense, has the UN Convention made on the way that blind citizens does things? Well, I think it's given us some clarity around the fact that we do have the right to be fully included in society. Um, it's created a status for organisations like ours, which we didn't used to have. So in the old days, I remember, you know, it was all you could do to write a letter to a minister or or, or seek a meeting with a government official and uh, you may or may not get that meeting and anything might or might not have happened. It was all very unstructured and quite random and you just played the game as best you could. But under the convention, there is an article, particularly it's Article 4.3, the, the, the state is obliged and has committed by ratifying the convention, it has committed to the idea of, of including disabled people in decision-making through the organizations that represent us. So that's clearly going to be uh, organizations like ours, which are actually formed um, for the purpose of representing our own members. So since that convention, and once it was realized that our government does have obligations in this area, we have had regular meetings with government officials. So we are involved in decision-making. 
we do get to monitor progress uh, that the government is making in its own disability action plan and the, its next disability strategy. Now, the, the strategy is just a long-term strategy. So you have your, your long-term strategy and you have short-term plans. We are much more involved in in the detail of all of that stuff. Just whether it makes a difference, I sometimes wonder. But I actually think, you know, I can point to 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 areas now where it is making a difference. And it's, so it's much more ongoing and sustained. It's not confrontational. Um, and sometimes that may be required. But what I'm talking about is the kind of step-by-step ongoing sustained advocacy that we're now able to do through regular meetings which are minuted. You can There's a record of progress. There are reports that you can use to, to tell whether or not um, progress is being made. There are levers we can pull if, if progress isn't being made. They may not always work, but they, you know, we're actually talking to um, the, at the chief executive and even the ministerial level of government when we want to pull those levers. So we only do that when we feel we need to. But it's a whole new way of working that I think still has to play itself out. This has only been happening for a couple of years. So I, I think that the convention has created that. It, it, without the convention, we wouldn't have it. It's Article 4.3. The other area that we are involved in is what's called monitoring. And again, under the convention, we have the right to be part of the monitoring of, of the government's progress. And we obviously have the right to tell it like it is to the United Nations when New Zealand is, um, is, is examined by the United Nations Committee. And New Zealand, now this is uh, great news, New Zealand has now agreed to accede to the op- what's called the optional protocol to the convention. So that allows blind people, well, allows disabled people to actually uh, go through the process of lodging a complaint uh, to the United Nations, I guess if you've exhausted all your domestic um, options. And of course, organisations like Blind Citizens New Zealand can use a lever like that uh, if we feel we, we just haven't made the kind of progress we want on a particular issue domestically. So the convention, I think, has given a whole new status to our Blind Citizens New Zealand and other DPOs um, in New Zealand. And I would say the same for, for other countries that have ratified the convention. In a practical sense, what happens if an issue has gone through all of the appropriate processes in New Zealand and an organisation like Blind Citizens or an individual for that matter is still not satisfied with the outcome? They go to the UN and the UN says, yep, you're absolutely right. You've got a case we find in your favour. But that's not binding, is it? Because it's, uh, they have no. no actual jurisdiction. That's right. Look, I think the point is that, that, and I may be sounding a bit like an old old fart now, because um, <laughs> I've been in the business for so long. I think the real point is that you almost never, um, you almost never get a king hit on an issue. It's always like um, you're you're able to push it one bit further and then one bit further, but you're always up against either resistance or lack of resources or whatever that is stopping you from getting to the ultimate level of inclusion that we want. Now, so so it it's true that when you if you go to the United Nations and and they make uh, recommendations, those recommendations are not binding, but the point is that you know New Zealand is still under the microscope and if those 
recommendations or findings are not taken seriously by the government, then it, it just looks bad on the international stage. So it does have some effect. And secondly, it, it gives you um, information that you can then use locally if you're having to do political lobbying. It's just um, you know your your opportunity to use that information at a local level just may help with the with the uh, the overall you know sort of po uh, politics of of the situation that that we're all working in. And I've I've often said to myself, well, I might not be in. I might not be president forever, but and I might not be doing this forever. But personally, I think I'm. We're all going to be having to advocate um, on into the future. Disability is as a a low level thing for the community to to understand, and I believe I'm going to be advocating and you know for for disabled people in one form or another until I'm no longer on this planet. So you know it's an ongoing thing, and these are just extra levers that we have at our disposal. Yes, and it's politically embarrassing for the government of the day, I'm sure, to be wrapped over the knuckles by the UN, and the, the opposition of the day would make a lot of hay with that. Yeah, sometimes the government is quite... Um, it's interesting because depending on who who they're talking to... In fact, I think I even heard a government minister this morning saying, you know, what the hell has the UN done about child poverty? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, sometimes governments just, just like to... Um, Kind of disassociate themselves from uh, from the United Nations as if somehow it's a it's an irrelevant uh, you know who cares what they think they're not they're not here they're not here to solve our problems and we don't give a toss. But on the other hand, you notice that um, you know when it comes to uh, such things as um, well, like Helen Clark, um, um, you know, applying for the Secretary General position, or or New Zealand getting a seat on the Security Council. Suddenly, you realise that you know the United Nations is important. So I actually think you know these things are important. And when New Zealand wants to play the game internationally, you don't want too many you know black marks against your name that that other countries can use against you. So I think it does make a difference. Absolutely. Is there a danger that the focus on the UN Convention has sort of genericized disability advocacy a bit and that any unique issues facing blind people may get lost in, in the shuffle? Bearing in mind, of course, that historically around the world, not just in New Zealand, blind people have been very successful governmental advocates. And here in this country, we've moved on from I guess people feeling some sort of sympathy for our needs and granting us very generous social security provisions in the wider scheme of things to the 1980s where the, the, the mood in New Zealand, the ethos changed completely and blind citizens modified its own behaviour then and came up with a very strong philosophical and economical argument about the costs of blindness and justified the retention of those social security provisions on that basis. So now we have a situation where there seems to be a lot less emphasis on individual disabilities, and I wonder whether that's a, a good thing necessarily for advancing the causes that the organisation has. Well. I think to some extent you you're right. There are some people who argue now that there isn't a place for disability specific organizations like Blind Citizens New Zealand. So the argument is in favor of generic disability organizations. But I personally feel 
that when the issues that any given disability um, uh, involves are are unique to that disability, and the more I sort of work in this field, the more I realize that actually, although we want the same outcomes, the way those outcomes impact on different disabilities is completely different. There is therefore still a need for disability-specific organizations. So take two issues. Uh, the issue about um, bodily integrity and um, and 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 having having informed consent before operations like sterilizations uh, are performed is of particular interest to people with learning disabilities but blind citizens new zealand although probably it's not an issue that that drives our people obviously supports that particular um uh, issue so we stand alongside th them in that in you know and when it comes to uh, access to the environment and we obviously we we are in favor of the environment being um, physically accessible even though blind people have our own needs for how the environment needs to be accessible we actually stand for the principle of accessibility so what I'm what I'm saying is that across the table when all the DPOs come together we are on the same page in with the principles of things but our actual needs can be quite different and we need to be there to vocalize those needs where when it counts so i wouldn't have a clue about um you know what it takes for a building to be accessible to a wheelchair but as long as somebody is 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 making those points those points will be covered i'll be there to make sure you know lifts are talking and that we have adequate wayfinding and etc um and or whoever is representing blind people in those discussions and somebody with a learning disability would be there to, to advocate for, for their needs uh, in the same way. And so, although you're right that at a higher level it's all generic, I think when it comes to the detail, we're still there ensuring that our own disabilities, and we need to be there to ensure that our own disabilities are, are covered uh, properly in these issues. Uh, otherwise, we're just going to find that certain disabilities might just get lost. So the idea, for example, of um, accessible information for blind people uh, and what does that actually mean uh, could easily just get lost if we weren't there to be quite sometimes quite specific about our requirements uh, in that space. Do you find that government is pretty fair about applying principles across the board? It, it just seems to me that when I read a lot of news or literature or whatever, the, the needs and the, the very important needs of, say, the deaf community with captioning are given far more attention than the needs of blind people and, and audio description. So I just, I just wonder whether some voices are louder around the table than others and get a bit more attention. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure that's right. And it's interesting because that example um, is probably quite a good example. And it it may be that we can learn uh, from the deaf community um, from from how they have managed to organise their advocacy and their service provision in I think quite a different way. But you know, the the reality is for blind people. Uh, we do have the Blind Foundation and we do have Blind Citizens New Zealand. And we have some, some other blindness consumer groups as well, of course, but, but we are the main uh, blindness advocacy organization. We have had a real struggle with resources in the last few years. So um, 
getting our voice heard hasn't been as as easy as it as it perhaps could have been if we if we just did have either more resources or a greater sense of working collaboratively with the blind foundation um and you know that takes us into a whole different area as to you know wondering well why aren't we working collaboratively with the blind foundation but you know and we have covered some of that already in this discussion uh and and obviously you know we have to keep trying to work um more productively with with the blind foundation but in some ways i think the deaf community has just got that aspect of its work somehow better under control than we have in the last few years and that could be what you're seeing what mood have you taken from the conference in general then as we wrap up how do you assess the the mood of the organization the things that are important to it well i thought the mood of conference was actually very upbeat um which was a little bit surprising because I think that that sometimes there is a degree of cynicism in um, in, in our in our community and in the disabled community generally, um, and you know it's like you know same old same old what the hell's changing and I don't notice any difference and you know despite all you what you guys are mithering on about it's you know there's always that kind of stuff but I didn't detect that. Um, in the conference, I thought the con- the people that came to conference. You've got to remember, I guess, that that a lot of the people that come to a conference like this um, are motivated. So you are, in a sense, uh, preaching to the choir. You know, these are people who are um, uh, are already uh, committed to uh, speaking up, and that's why they're there. And and some of them are there because they, you know, they spent good money to get there, so they want to have their say. I, I mean, I did think that the the mood was great. We had a great um, opportunity to meet the people standing in the current election for the foundation's board, um, and uh, and that I think created some excitement uh, because otherwise all you get is just two hundred or three hundred words that the candidate has written themselves and you know you can say anything about yourself that's going to look good so this was an opportunity for people to actually see how the candidates actually um, uh, performed under questions and to hear them hear them actually answer the questions hear the tone of their voice hear how confident they sounded or whether they were kind of stumbling you know these are things that that um, we can do so the mood I think was great and um, I would I would count it as one of our successful conferences, and yeah, I think it, it's um, you know people are coming to terms with the fact that organisations like ours have a job to do. Um, it we we are in there doing our best for our members. Uh, it doesn't always mean that you get everything you want when you want it, but I think we're able to explain what we've done from one year to the next and um, and people still have faith in the idea of um, of consumer organizations I just want more people to have that faith I would like more people to to be part of that voice um, but you've still got to represent the people that are committed and uh, that's what we do very good I look forward to finding out what happens next and I appreciate you coming on the podcast to have a chat with us Excellent, Jonathan. It's great to be with you and, um, you know, 
hope things continue to go well with the podcast going forward. The weather's supposed to be getting warmer here in this part of the world, although today things are a little bit dodgy. A bit dodgy. Is that another New Zealandism? Possibly. See, I'm, I'm, I'm self-conscious about it now. But winter is coming in the Northern Hemisphere and it's a good time to curl up in front of your fire or your heat of whatever description and enjoy some stuff on an accessible set-top box like an Apple TV. Well, it just so happens that Mosin Consulting has an ebook on Apple TV. It's called The Apple of Your Eye, and it's right up to date with all of the latest features in the Apple TV fourth generation. So you might want this book if you already have an Apple TV fourth generation device and you want to make sure you're making the most of it, or perhaps you're considering buying an Apple TV fourth generation and you want to understand precisely what it does and whether there's any benefit for you in buying one. In either case, do feel free to head over to the Mosin Consulting store and pick up a copy of The Apple of Your Eye, which is all about using Apple TV fourth generation with voiceover. The website to find it is at www.mosin.org. That's www.mosen.org slash ATV4. Time for me to head off. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to The Blind Side, a production of Mosin Consulting. On the web at mosin.org.